In the previous episode, when I'm speaking to perimenopausal, menopausal women, they're really dealing with too much estrogen. So that can be tackled for many different ways. But one of them is eating with less frequency. So you have better balanced blood sugar, better balanced insulin, more insulin sensitivity with the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cells, and then digging a little deeper to look at the other you know, transient ways that we're getting the non-beneficial types of synthetic estrogen into our life and cleaning those things up as well. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're going to have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. In keeping with the theme of blood sugar and insulin dysregulation, today's episode dives deep into the important testing that all successful practitioners need to master in order to improve and save lives of people whose function is suboptimal in this area. The tests we'll explore today are not utilized enough by conventional medical practitioners, and we're going to explain why this is a big mistake that can and does often cost lives. Our guest today is Annette Falconet, author of My Journey Back to Health, Living with Multiple Chemical Sensitivities. She's a health coach, nutrition therapy practitioner, and nutritional endocrinology practitioner who believes that real whole food is foundational to good health. Annette knows from personal experience that we have to empower our clients and patients to change the way they eat and make a lifestyle change that leads to a healthier life. Annette became interested in nutrition and alternative healing modalities in 1989 after she developed multiple chemical sensitivities while cleaning out her bathroom. She spent the next year in bed, and while in bed, she just started to read about alternative healing and nutrition. She was certified as a nutritional therapy practitioner in June 2011, joined the NEPT program, which is our nutritional endocrinology practitioner training in October 2016, and then was certified as a nutritional endocrinology practitioner in 2019. She's been a coach in my client programs since 2017. So to say that I know Annette and her qualifications well is uh, an understatement. <laughs> in 2015, about six and a half years ago, life threw Annette a wicked curveball. 
when her daughter had her own health crisis. This experience taught Annette firsthand the importance of comprehensive metabolic testing and methods that you can teach your clients and patients to use at home to keep themselves metabolically healthy. We talked in episode one about the grim statistics related to metabolic health and that a 2018 study concluded that 88% of the population is metabolically unwell. Think about all that potential. You can listen back to that episode for all the specifics. And now I would like to welcome to the show, Annette Falconette. So glad that you're here, Annette. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is, this is great. Thank you for a wonderful introduction. Mm, and thank you for all the work you're doing and how many people's lives your story has impacted. So when I first heard your story of how you came to be so interested in blood sugar balance and to realize the importance of testing, I was completely blown away. And I've frequently heard you say that if you knew then what you knew now about testing for blood sugar dysregulation, you would have saved your family lots of heartache and suffering. So tell us, tell the audience what you believe could have made such a huge difference for your family had you known it about six and a half years ago. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. My daughter in January of 15, she was 21. She was away at school and she came down with a virus and uh, it really knocked her down hard. You know, she went back to school kind of sick and that whole semester, she was working a lot at school. She was doing side jobs. She was burning the candle at both ends, lots of stress that semester. And she was never really well. Every cold that came through, she picked up. She was always telling me, I've got a cold. I've got allergies going on. There was always something. One time she called and she's like, I have food poisoning. And she told me, she was, yeah, I've had it for like three or four days. And I'm like, you know, food poisoning doesn't last that long. This is something else. No, no, it's food poisoning. And she just struggled with her health that entire semester. At the end of the semester, I went and I picked her up to bring her home from school. And her eyes were really watery. And Samantha has blue eyes. And when she gets sick, they go gray. And they were starting wow. to go a little gray. And I'm like, are you sure? She goes, yeah, it's the dust from the room. and. She had proudly told me, I always thought she didn't drink enough water. She had proudly told me, Mom, by the way, I'm drinking more water. You'll be happy. I was like, yay, not realizing that that was her body trying to flush out all of this super high blood sugar that she was experiencing. And I didn't realize it till later. My kid was really sticks and bones. I mean, you could see, and there's a picture of her and you can see the bones in her arm. She was so thin. We came home. She went to school in Alabama. We lived in Houston. We drove home and we went to bed that night. Got up the next day. She was all right. It was like she had a cold or allergies. Her spirits were good. The next day, things started getting a little strange. I heard her up in her room Tuesday morning. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I just threw up. And I'm like, okay. She hadn't eaten much the day before. I made her go to the doctor and he said, and she was very lethargic. Oh, she was so lethargic. And he said, she has a virus. Take her home, let her rest, plenty of fluids. I'm like, okay. 
Nobody ever poked this child's finger because they would have seen just obnoxiously high blood sugars. Tuesday night, she was, it was getting even weirder in my world. She was, you could tell she wasn't feeling well. She was, oh, she was so lethargic. And to move, you could tell was painful. And I made her sleep with me that night. And in the morning, I couldn't wake her up. I started, yeah, I, I remember smacking her face, not hard, but slapping her face and calling her name. And, and she, she tried to wake up and she's told me since she goes, you know, I heard you and I tried. I said, I know you tried because she was grunting at me. No words, just sounds. Took her to the hospital and um, they told me my daughter had a blood sugar of 635, like six times what it should be. And my training to that point was there's two types of diabetics and high blood sugar isn't good. And we can, you know, you can do, ins there's the kind that get insulin and there's the kind that just change the way they eat. And I'm like, well, my other than school, my kid eats pretty well. You know, what's going on? And then they came out and they started telling me that she was dehydrated. She had sepsis. Turns out she had a double ear infection. She had a sinus infection. She was tachycardic. She was in multiple organ failures. And they're yelling at me, why isn't your kid on medication? And I'm like, why would she be on medication? And they're like, well, she has diabetes. She's in diabetic ketoacidosis. So not only was her blood super high, her blood was very acidic. My kid was shutting down. My child was dying in front of our eyes. If somebody somewhere along the way had poked her finger and had seen her at three or 400, we could have gotten her to the hospital. We could have stopped some of what was going on. And the day we took her to the hospital was also my birthday. So I have people sending me texts going, hey, have a great day. Happy birthday. And I'm writing back. Yeah, not so good. My kid's in the emergency room. She's a mess. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Got to go. Huh. How horrible. The, yeah. She was admitted. And her A1C at admittance was 14.3. Um, just as a reminder, guys, the A1C should be in the range of five. So, yeah. And for diabetics, you know, mainstream medical will even give I would have taken the seven <laughs> that right. mainstream medical <laughs> says is good. She was double that. She did slip into a coma for three days. She had swelling of the brain. So they were like, oh, she has meningitis. I'm like, no, she doesn't. The, the swelling of the brain is a side effect. It's just a piece of being in diabetic ketoacidosis. They did a spinal tap on her, multiple, I, you name a test, they did it. Her kidneys were shutting down. She ended up having dialysis four times. In our case, her kidneys responded quickly and she no longer, they're, they're fine. They've been declared healed. But, you know, could I have saved her from type 1 diabetes? Probably not because it is an autoimmune condition. And like I said, I could have anybody Save. poking that child's finger would have stopped the kidney damage, the, you know, what happened to her heart. I, just so much. She probably, she should not have gone into the coma. Coma's part can be part of diabetic ketoacidosis. So just a little bit of knowledge. You, you come into my house yeah. now and you're sick, I'm poking your finger. We yeah. are testing yeah. your blood sugar. You know, she had yeah. a friend come over. The friend wasn't feeling well. The, the girl's a pharmacist. She knows how we operate. We're like, give us your finger. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, it's not a high blood sugar episode. So we know it's not that. Now let's go on to the next thing that might be wrong with you. And when we ended up taking the girl to the 24 hour doctors and I said, well, we took her blood sugar and it was, you know, 95. And he goes, you did what? (laughs) Why? I'm like, why? Well, this, yeah, I'm like, this one's a type one. If you're sick, I test you. So. And rightly so. So here's the thing, right? You took her, she went to the doctor because she thought she had a virus. Why didn't they run a blood test? Just a normal, you know, chem screen and CBC just to see, but, you know, she has some virus. Does she have a, why they didn't do what's kind of should be normal procedure if someone is ill. Right. Because she was a strong 21 year old. She was healthy. We ate well. She was thin. Like I said, in retrospect, I realized she was too thin at that time. So it was just assumed that she didn't have, it was just a virus and it was nothing big and major going on. So I want to, I want to tease this apart a little bit. So the girl is ill for six months or whatever. You figure it's college. She's not doing what she would be doing at home from a food perspective. She might be partying. The room may not have, because you have multiple chemical sensitivities, your house is pristine now. You've cleaned it up. There's no chemicals in the environment. So, you know, you can think she's exposed to this stuff. Right. But simple test when you took, I mean, that's one thing you didn't see because as a mom, now as a nutritional endocrinology practitioner, right away, you know, what are the things to look for, but you didn't at that time. Right. And if I had, if I know, you know, what I know now, if I had it back then, I would have sent her to any lab test now, any lab, you know, because she had those in Alabama and I would have prepaid for the tests. And I would have sent her in for general blood work, but I didn't, I didn't know all that. You didn't know what you know now, right? Yeah. You didn't know. But here's the thing. The doctor didn't know. And if right. you guys know why we're here, reinvent healthcare. This has got to change. A system like this has got to change. A 21-year-old who is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes from an emergency room with a, a 600 blood sugar and a 14A1C. That should never, never, never have progressed that far. And going back to, could we have saved her from having type 1 diabetes at all? Probably not. Maybe had Maybe. You know, somebody started doing the testing like when she was a little kid and found some of these markers, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that could have told people, told the, the community, the doctors, whoever she went to, that there was a problem and that it could have been maybe halted a lot sooner. because likely. This problem has been going on for a little bit, like maybe just slightly elevated blood sugar and that sort of thing. But it, it drives me crazy. And I know it drives you crazy to hear stories like this because it's a simple solution. We need to learn how to test people's metabolic health from early on, right? So right. what we talk about and we, we teach a lot in our nutritional endocrinology practitioner training and everybody's like kind of brainwashed that this is something you need to do. You need to look at postprandial glucose because it's an early marker. That was a game changer for us later. So a couple years after three weeks in the hospital, three or four days in a coma at the age of 21, this is a, so this was in, I found you in 17. So this would have been in 17, 2017. I started studying with you and Samantha started having some issues with her blood sugar control. And 
she was like, you know, mom, I keep waking up. I'm low, but I feel great. And I know. And I said, well, your blood sugar is off. And she goes, no, no, no. I've got great control. And I'm like, do you really? And I said, because what you're describing to me is you're having some highs after you eat. No, 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 I'm not. And I'm like, would you, would you do, mom, I know what my blood sugars are. I said, well, how many times a day do you prick your finger to test? And she goes six to eight times. I said, okay, so that's, let's say that's for like five minutes at a pop. I said, so you know what your blood sugar is like one hour out of 24. What's going on in those other 23 hours? That's what we don't know. And that's what's messing you up. And she finally went, she avoided doing blood work. She finally went, I got the blood work back and I spent days just crying because her A1C was back up to 13. Her blood sugar on the day of the test was over 300. And I called her and I'm like, it's bad. And you're headed back to the hospital. And one of her biggest fears was being hospitalized in Alabama because she'd gone back to Alabama. I'm like, this has got to stop. So I got on a plane and I went out there because I was living in Houston and she got mad at me and like she kicked me out of her apartment because she didn't like what I was saying to her, which was good because I had a hotel. It was fine. So she, I said, we have to do this postprandial testing. We have to, you're missing highs. And she kept going, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. And I think we'll stop there for a second because I want to make a really clear point. What her diabetes doctor, endocrinologist, general practitioner, whoever was managing, told her to test two hours after a meal. Right. And And what we know is that that's too late. Right. She's already had her highs. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The highs typically happen at 45 minutes after, you know, maybe a half an hour for some and an hour, an hour and a half for others. But that two hour mark, it Ideally, in a normal person, it should be back down to baseline, back down right. to fasting, 85, right. whatever. She would test before dinner and she, or a meal, and she might have been 90. And then two hours later, she might have been, you know, 95, 96. And she's like, it's good. So we started, she agreed that she would do postprandial after lunch. So we got paper out and she started tracking it. And it, was an eye opener. She was hitting two and 300 after these meals and then coming back down because, you know, she had injected insulin. So she was coming back down to where she was supposed to be. But she got so into it because she was learning so much information. She got out all five glucose meters that she had, and we would do all five of them every 15 minutes up to that two hour mark. And it became just instead, I had insisted on one meal. She ended up doing it for three. And that was so eye opening for her. And it totally turned around the way she cares for herself. That's when she came to me and she said, I want a continuous glucose monitor. And she started, you know, going to the gym. She can totally control her type one diabetes with exercise and food choices. It's amazing what she's been able to accomplish, but I wouldn't have known about the postprandial testing if I hadn't taken your program. As I've said to you before, thank you <laughs> for helping me save her life because she was headed wow. back to the hospital and I she don't was think with the results numbers. would have been as good. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Second time around. No, 
especially going into organ failure and kidney failure. No, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been. And, you know, this is the stuff that needs to be taught. And I know that you went on and took like a, a standard diabetes educator course. And they're not teaching people this, right? No. They're not teaching no. people how to manage that, that magic that happens, that, that criticism, critical period between the time you eat and that two hours, all of the different measures you get there and you see a pattern and a picture. And yeah. knowing that and educating people about that can save their lives. And we're talking here type 1 diabetes where it's critical because they're, they're shooting up insulin and we want to ideally, this is you and I have talked about this a lot. Ideally, you want somebody on the minimal effective dose of insulin. Right. We won't, don't want them to have to just, what, did, what do you call it? Eat and pray. Eat and no, cover. Eat and cover. Eat, eat and, and cover. cover, which is what they're taught, right? Don't worry about what you're eating. Just know how much insulin to shoot to cover that amount. But what they're not telling people is the damaging effects of high levels of insulin. We all know the high levels of, high levels of blood sugar, and I always call it the, the bad stuff, the, the blindness the amputation and and dialysis, right? So, well, I just make them worse than they are, right? We call them the bad effects of uh, blood sugar out of control. Blindness, right? Because it affects the retinas. Amputation, because it affects the peripheral nerves. And dialysis. Amputation, amputation is is really more common. It's, it's, It's a type two. That's part of being a type two. Type ones really don't have amputations. Because type 1s are usually caught pretty early on in the disease because they crash like she did. Because they um, crash, yeah. Whereas type 2s, they kind of slip through the cracks for it can be up to years. For years, they can slip through the cracks. So they're actually more likely to have the amputation than a type 1. Yeah, interesting. And, and this is, we've talked about this theory as well. I believe that type 1s become type 2 and type 2s become type 1 when they are doing the traditional approach. So give me an example is if you put somebody on high levels of insulin and they're just told to eat and cover, eat and cover, and their insulin levels are really high, they're going to develop insulin resistance, Correct. right? Whether right. they're producing the, too much insulin or whether they're taking too much insulin. So then you get the complications of having both things, right? And they have to have mm-hmm. even more insulin and then all the side effects and all that. So they can develop insulin resistance and type 2-like symptoms. Correct. And the same thing with type 2. because it's not a true type 1, where it's usually affected by antibodies, and the antibodies are attacking either the insulin or the beta cells or both. But they become type, the type 2s become insulin resistant later on because they've burned their pancreas out from so many years of too much insulin. So these are the things that, unfortunately, doctors are not taught in medical school. And that's the kind of stuff that we teach because it's, it's so critical to save people. Um, you brought up medical school. Uh, Samantha and I were at a, a restaurant not far from UT one day, and there were medical students sitting at a table. And we heard the word diabetes, so we stopped our conversation to listen. And they were like, do you even read that stuff they send us about diabetes? And they're like, no, I just stick it in the file. It's not that big of a deal. So there's four medical students at this table, and they all were like, eh, it's no big deal. It's just diabetes. And I, I reached out to the school. Oh, my. And I'm like, hey, you had four kids sitting there. My kid almost died from diabetes. And you had four students, and they just don't even care. And the woman's like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> oh, God. So not only are they not teaching it, what they do get, they don't even pay attention to. We, 
when she was hospitalized the first time, as such a blessing. We had an amazing ER doc. She's still in touch with him on and off. He was, I'm, I'm forever grateful to the doctors we had that first time. And there are a lot of good um, ones. And there are. there are a lot of them who are, it's not their fault necessarily, it's that they, they weren't taught. They weren't taught. So well, a couple of things I want to, I want to have takeaways here. So you're listening to this podcast. Hopefully, you know, you're either a practitioner, a health coach, a, a, a doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner, or maybe you're just listening to it for your own health. And there's a few takeaways here that we really, really need. It needs to be in the medical education. It's not in the medical education. That's why I spend so much time teaching it in our, we have a whole program, like a 12-week program on teaching all about insulin resistance. So there's a couple of things I want to really, I want to really point out here. Number one, the importance of testing, early, early testing, the importance of recognize any kind of cold flu, whatever, that doesn't go away. Any kind of illness mm -hmm. that we're just like, oh, well, just, you know, go to bed, take Tylenol. That should be investigated for yep. diabetes. Blood sugar testing, like you said, poke the finger, $15 unit that everybody should have at home. And I've heard you say, uh, just like a thermometer, thermometer. everybody should yep. have a glu glucose meter, right? Every house yep. should have it. So if somebody, part of the stick, the thermometer in the mouth, you stick the little needle in the finger and test the blood sugar. And if it's off, then you're rushing them off to the doctor, to the emergency room if, if it's super high to right. get the right care because she could have prevented all of this had someone tested her early on. Like you said, right. even if it was 300 already, that's not high enough to have put her into ketoacidosis. But if they had really tested, it might have been just a little high. And I want to talk about that because the, the standard of care is you measure fasting glucose. Right. And if somebody's fasting glucose is not above 120, they're not diabetic. And sadly, there's a diagnosis called insulin resistance that if it's over 100 and three consecutive times that they're considered insulin resistance. The unfortunate thing is that most doctors, they're not taught how to manage insulin resistance. They just tell people to go ahead and lose weight. Right. Well, right. <laughs> lose weight. That's not exactly the right approach. Right. Have if we teach people early on how to test their postprandial, and even if we can't, if we don't do that, how can the doctors test? And, and we can have this discussion about what other tests should not just be the profile of somebody who are already diagnosed with type 1 or type 2 diabetes that should be mm -hmm. tested early on as part of the routine exam. Maybe not every year if there's no signs of imbalance, but maybe every few years just to make sure that somebody's not getting into the danger zone. So what are some of those tests that you do with Samantha on a regular basis to help keep her from getting into this crisis again? Okay. So she goes, she sees her PA, I think, twice a year, right? And sometimes because her control is so good, she can push it out to once a year. But we still want to know what's happening in between. So we do home A1C tests. There, I, it's one of those things that's in my house right now, home A1C tests. It's just like poking your finger to test the, your regular blood sugar. So we know pretty much, I can, I, if she's not sure, if she's like hasn't been feeling well, whatever, she not only can check her glucose, she'll wait a bit and check that A1C because it's going to tell her for the last 90 to 120 days. And I get it's not accurate in everybody, like it doesn't work well in pregnant women, but it still gives us a ballpark idea of how well she's been doing. So we keep those at home. That's a big test. I always, I, at least once a year, 
I run a C-peptide on her. And the C-peptide Tell us about that. What does a C-peptide really mean? So when the beta cells in the pancreas, they create, when they create the insulin, it is attached to a C-peptide and the body cleaves it apart and the insulin goes to help get the glucose into the cells. And that C-peptide circulates in the blood for a while. So you measure, by measuring those C-peptides, you can extrapolate how much is she making insulin? Because most type ones do not. Is she making insulin or not? Samantha still makes insulin. Um, it's yeah, it's not the level it should be. It fluctuates, but she still makes it. So in we think that's a great thing. We want to keep that production going. The fact that she's still producing almost seven years post diagnosis is huge in type ones for type ones. Most type ones. Like I said, they don't produce insulin and you will see parents saying, oh, I can't wait till they stop because it's going to be so much easier to control the insulin, know know the injections, because when they make it, it it messes up and it causes more highs and and lows that don't need to be. And I'm screaming, no, 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 let's keep it doing what it's supposed to do. You know, if the cure for type one comes along three, four, 10 years from now and her pancreas is still making you know, she's got a better chance at totally recovering. And I have, like I said, I I pay for the C-peptide. Doctors won't run it. They won't Um, run it. That's sad. Because they're like, even in a type one, they're like, why? She doesn't make it. I'm like, but she does. She was seeing an endocrinologist and she saw him for about four or five years. And I went to the first consult and he was looking, he's like, why do you run all this stuff? I'm like, because I know, because this tells me so much. And I'm like, and I run the C-peptide and she's still making insulin. And he's like, she's a type one. What does it matter? I'm like, oh my God. So about three years in, he sat down and he really looked at his blood, at her blood work because he wasn't understanding why his dosing wasn't working for her. Mm. And he looked at what I had done that year and he looked at her and he said, this is amazing blood work. Who, who does this for you? Who picks this? And she's like, my mom does. And he's like, is she a doctor? She's like, no, she's a health coach. So anyone can do it. Doctors aren't going to do it. But you have to know what to order. You You have have to know know what to order. order. Right. And you have to know how to read it. Yes. And And that was something you learned through your program, right? Yeah. 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 So C-peptide's a big one for me. I did run a number of autoimmune markers on her. I'm not going to do that every year. But it was good to have all those baselines for her. To um, know whether she's is she attacking her pancreas right. or attacking her insulin or attacking both. Both. Right. And also the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, actually has a list of 10 antibodies. They say, hey, run these. And one of them is zinc. Um, mm. and, but she's, yeah. yeah. But that one's good. She, she doesn't have that one. But, you know, if the doctors believe what happened is that virus she caught attacked her pancreas. And that's what blew out her beta cells. You know, but like I said, if, if somewhere, if I could have caught it in between, there's, there's a study out there called TrialNet and type 1 diabetes, type 1 diabetics, excuse me, can go in and they, they join the trial and they start testing family members and they'll pick up, oh, hey, your sibling has you know, some of the markers. So let's work on that sibling. And they can, in many cases, delay the onset and preserve beta cell function much longer. 
Most likely she, if she yeah. has the genetics, which I don't know if you've looked at that yet, but if she's genetically prone to have type one, but she doesn't have the exposures. And I know how careful you've been because you had your right. chemical sensitivity thing. So you cleaned up the house, cleaned up the diet early on. That probably delayed her onset right. as well. Right. And then she went to school where they served GMOs and this, <laughs> that, and the other. And yep. I'm like, I'll pay for the meal plan, but I'll give you money to go eat. And she's like, no, no, no. I want to fit in. I'm, well, I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't fit in. <laughs> Don't no, fit don't in. fit in. I know. It's let a hard thing. You, yeah. Let me yeah. give you food money. You can go get your own organic food. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot here, a lot to unpack. And, and a lot mm -hmm. of it applies not just to type 1 diabetes, but to type 2. And the failure of the testing that the medical, you know, conventional medical is doing. And the beauty of right now in most states here in the U.S., you can get your own testing done, which is what Annette does. She mentioned a lab called Any Lab. There's another lab called Direct Labs. There's another one called Your Lab Work. And, and they're popping up all over the place. Somebody just told me yesterday on a call, one of my clients said that she found that LabCorp now has a direct access that you can go in and yeah. order a test. So it's happening because people are demanding to be empowered to take charge of their health. And those are the kind of people who are going to come see you. That they, they want to know, how can I take charge of my health? Because I don't want these complications. I wanted to mention another thing. You say you do the A1C test. So just as a reminder, that's kind of like the average glucose over the course of the last three months. It's how, how what percentage of the red blood cells are glycosylated, it, it, you know, covered in glucose. And the range, the really ideal range should be right around five, you know, give or take a little bit less, a little bit more. The medical profession, the, the lab um, norms, is that if it's below 5.7, you're good. But what that means is that the average glucose is somewhere around like 118, which is way too high because an average glucose means that the fasting averaged in with the peaks. So if somebody's right. up at 118, it means that even if they're normal fasting and they're looking for normal fasting in the 80s, they're having some pretty high peaks to make the average be 118, right? If you see that kind of number, that's a clue that it's really important to get the postprandial and testing it after meals and mapping it out. And that's something we teach in our sweet spot program that we teach to clients. And I've empowered so many hundreds, thousands even of clients to do this testing. And you can do the same. Teach them how to do this. Empower them so they don't have the horrific complications. Um, and then the other thing is, okay, let's just do the big reveal. Samantha's A1C <laughs> as a type 1 diabetic. What is the range that the doctor is saying she should be? She should be, they consider 6 to 7 is good. She's currently, and I'll get to where you want me to go. She is currently about a 5.5, which even that the doctors are like, why? This isn't, they, they think she's not well because she's at a 5.5. But the, the practitioner she's working with, is is thrilled. She's like, I wish all of my people were like you because she has such amazing control. But when Samantha was like driven, she had a goal. She was going to get her A1C below five, which is just not done. And she exercised every day, like at the gym, exercising. Um, she ate all the right foods and she actually had an A1C of 4.8, wow. which is unheard of. She and I went to a certified diabetes educator conference and 
there was a guy that was speaking like we are, you know, it's about food and exercising and all of the certified diabetes educator, the CDEs were like, oh, that's just not true. It doesn't happen that way. He's not a true type one. And I made her get up and speak in support of him. And I said, you have to say what your A1C is. Because at that time, she was the 4.8. And she looked healthy and all of her muscles were toned. And I was then, and she said, no, he's right. Because I have a 4.8. And I'm in a room later with like 20 educators. And they're like, did you hear that girl? She said she had a 4.8. She's not a type one. There's no way. She was making that up. So I'm, wow. I'm like, hey, that's my kid. She's not lying. I saw the test results. I know what her antibodies are. My kid is a type one. It is possible. But you've got to see, there was a CDE in that room that was obese. And someone, they were asking us, would, if your clients could change their food and improve you know, their health and their, their live a longer, healthier life with diabetes, would you encourage them to change their food? And this obese CDE said, no, because I don't want them to do without. I don't want them <laughs> to feel cheated that they can't have what they want to have. So that's the hurdle in most of the mainstream medical field towards and it's type so 1. Sad. It's so sad. Like, you know, and people say, well, I don't want to do postprandial testing because I don't want to put my finger <sighs> that much. It hurts. It's like, come on, does blindness not hurt? Does dialysis not hurt? I mean, do all the complications that you're setting yourself up for, do they not hurt? Like, let's well, just, you know, little pinprick or get a, and, and you can always get them recommended and, and prescribed by a doctor for a continuous glucose meter. So, so let's, we, we're almost at the end. So I want you to just briefly talk about the continuous glucose meter and why that's so important and how they're becoming more and more available, which I'm thrilled with. I know. So like I said, in, in Alabama, Samantha came to my hotel and said, I want a continuous glucose monitor. And right now, the, the two big ones on the market are the Dexcom and the Abbott Freestyle Libre. And in her case, Dexcom was the better choice because of all the alarms on it. And it's really mm -hmm. is made for type ones. So she went that route and it tells us 24 seven what her blood sugar is. It gives, it'll tell her and she can see trends. She can see when she's starting to trend low and she knows she needs to go eat some carb. She can see when she's going high. So that means she either needs to just walking can bring your blood sugar down. Mm -hmm. Just drinking some water can bring your blood sugar down. We saw it in the hospital time after time. They would come and want to give her insulin and we'd be like, no, no, we're going for a walk. We'd come back, they'd retest and they would have to give her less just because we walked the floor a few times. So just those things alone can bring it down. The, the Libre is, is great. It's kind of more marketed towards type twos, but again, it lets you see what's going on mm -hmm. 24 hours a day, as opposed to right. my kid telling me, I know what my numbers are. I text six to seven times a day. You don't know exactly. what you're missing. You miss a lot. Exactly. You miss stuff when you sleep. So they're, they're wonderful tools. Just amazing. Total game changer for us was getting the continuous. When she first went to the doctor and said, I want to get a Dexcom, he said, no, let me put this Libre on you. You wear it. You go home, wear it for five, six days. We couldn't see it. It was a demo. So only he could scan it. 
And we went back to his office and he took it off of her and they went and scanned it. And it was, it was so scary. But again, it just showed her the only time she was down in normal range was when she was exercising. Other than that, she was in the two and three hundreds. Um, so so they're, they're, they're wonderful. Even when they don't work properly, they're still great because you can still watch trends. I wish everybody could get them. I do too. wear all the time. No, but for a couple of weeks or a month to just see where you're at and all diabetics should have them. I don't understand why they didn't just prescribe it outright on a type one diabetic. All should, I think all should have it. So these are meters. This, this uh, freestyle Libre is now available only by prescription in the U.S., but in Canada, Mexico, Europe, you walk into the pharmacy and buy one. And in the U.S., you need a prescription. It's getting a little easier. I I recommend it to all my clients and and patients and people in my programs. And some of them have doctors that will prescribe them and some of them won't. But there are a few, kind of like direct access labs, where they are uh, the few companies that you go in and you fill out a form. They have contracted with doctors that will prescribe and you get a prescription. So there's at least three of them that I know of, Levels, January.ai, and then the third one, which always escapes me, but I, I just know. saw some. I don't remember either. Yeah, I don't remember it. But there's, you, know, you just go on Facebook for a couple of hours and you'll see ads, ads for them all the time. But um, yeah, so I think they sh- that everybody should be using them. It is a game changer because when you actually see it, you go, whoops, right? Yeah. I thought that that, that toast that was whole grain, gluten-free toast was fine for me. And next thing you know, it's like shooting your blood sugar up to 140, 160, whatever. And when you wear them, you learn your portion size. I yes. can, you know, I can have a handful of blueberry strawberries, but I can't have that whole pint, yeah. you know? So it yeah. teaches you, that's good. That, and that's it. And, I like that and part of to it eat as well. It with. And right. what to eat it with, right? right. I, I, can eat it, I can eat a handful of blueberries with a big green smoothie or a salad or something like that to slow down mm-hmm. the absorption. But if I blend the blueberries into a smoothie, it doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't work. It's too quickly absorbed into my bloodstream and my sugar goes up. So these are the things like I think empowered self-care is the healthcare of the future. We empower our clients, our patients to take charge, to do whatever testing they need to do, to look at their body, understand how it works and make the diet and lifestyle changes to live a long and healthy life, right? And, and sometimes right. I look at people and I say, are you willing to give up whatever it might be, n- Triscuits, in order to get rid of your knee pain? And they kind of look at me and go, well, sure, if I had a choice, but I don't know that it's directly related. That's our job. Inspire, right. empower, and get people to try these things and see the value and see how good they can feel. So I think we've covered so much today, Annette. I just so appreciate uh, you being here. Let's just end with a summary of what testing we think that people should get, you know, and you guys as practitioners, whether you are licensed to PA, whether you're an MD, nurse practitioner, or that you are a health coach or a nutritionist and can still do these tests, but you've got a little, you know, ways to go around the system to get them. So what are the tests that you think that people not the people who have diabetes already, just the average person that walks into our clinics or our our programs. And what do you think they should be getting? You need to do the standard blood work, you know, with all the markers, the CBC. But if your your doctor didn't order the fasting glucose, pay for it out of pocket. 
because I get blood work all the time and I'm like, where's your fasting glucose? Or I did the test at three o'clock in the afternoon. They said it didn't. It has to be fasting. (laughs) It has to be fasting or I'm not even looking at it. You have to do the A1C. A1C, like I said, you can do home testing on that. Those are absolutes. Run a C-peptide once in a while. My daughter challenged me to run a C-peptide. So I'm going to do that because she's like, I want to know what your range is. So those are absolutes in my world. And, you know, let's go from there and then see if we need to run any antibodies. Getting the triglycerides for sure. Run that lipid panel because that's a big piece in what's going on with your blood sugar as well. Don't just go, oh, I just got, you know, my thyroid done. Okay, that's good. But what about the other things? The other things are important as well. Right. Yeah. And in my world, a complete blood sugar metabolic panel would include fasting glucose. It would include A1C. I don't always include C-peptide unless there's some reasons, but I'll I'll run an insulin, right? I'll run an insulin because it's relatively inexpensive. And I think C-peptide is a little more expensive, but you can run an insulin and see, are they in that ideal range of two to five? But if they're two to five and you're suspicious that they may have type one diabetes or an antibody reaction, then you have to do what's called a postprandial insulin. So you test it after their highest carbohydrate meal to see if they're responding, to see how they're... And then, you know, the, the C-peptide definitely, if they've been diagnosed, I see. But postprandial, postprandial insulin, glucose, right? You get a meter, you get a continuous, whatever, and you run that test on a regular basis. Last question for you, Annette. How often okay. do you think that this insidiousness of type 1 diabetes, that people don't know it, and their kid might have it and ends up in an emergency room like yours. Is that um, a common thing? Yes, it is common. It happens a lot more frequently. And when she was in the hospital, actually shortly after she got out, I was reading about kids that were in the situa- same situation as her and they died. They didn't mm. go home. Um, yeah. So this, is, this can be deadly. Like I said, my child was shutting down. And if she yeah. didn't get the great in- intervention that we got, she wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today because I wouldn't have gone down the diabetes path. Diabetes barged into my world. Uh, I didn't invite it. So now every time I can turn someone around, I can get a little piece of info out that they go, hmm, and change someone's life. That's It makes what we went through a little easier to deal with. Wow. Thank you so um, much. We've been talking to Annette. Falconet, check the show notes. You'll see some links and how to contact her. I want to encourage you to go deeper with this. We've provided you with a resource. It's called The Many Faces of Fasting. And in that document, I talk about all the different ways that you can do fasting, intermittent fasting, all the benefits, the effects that it has metabolically on the system. And if you go to reinventhealthcare.com, you will see that listed there regarding this show. And when you go there, you'll be able to download this document that I put together. And it's very, very detailed and very, very complete. And also, I'm going to leave you with this. You want to be the best practitioner you possibly can. Whatever reason you got into this, part of it, I'm sure, was to change lives, to save lives, to make life better for most people. So go out there, use what you've learned today and shine on. Thank you for listening to the Reinvent Healthcare podcast. 
Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well, rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.